We're going to be in Mark's Gospel today. So if you have your Bibles, please open them up. We're going to be in chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. I want to say a special thank you to those of you who are football fans who have come out on FA Cup third round day um, to be at church. Just switch it off. This shows a special level of dedication. So praise God and well done. Okay, let's, let's read together then, shall we? Uh, verses 7 through 13. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Lord, we give thanks for your word today, which is food for us. And we come hungry, Lord God. We come and we want to really just gain an appetite for your word this afternoon. We want it to nourish us. We want it to give us fuel and strength for the week ahead. So we pray right now that, Father, you'd open our ears and open our hearts to hear what it is you're wanting to say. And I pray, Lord God, that as Dave prayed for me, that you'd clear anything in me out of the way that needs to be moved out of the way. Don't let me get in the way of your word to your people today, I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. You know, I sense as we're reading through this Gospel of Mark, just the same as I sense with Daniel, that God really has got some good stuff for us. Amen. I feel like this is very key prophetically for us as a a church, as a congregation, as a community. And so I'm excited about what this passage is going to teach us today. I've I've been challenged by it, um, and it's certainly pushed me and challenged me as I've read through it. And so I hope it will do the same for you. I hope it will reignite a passion for being a missionary in you today. How many of you understand that you're a missionary? Did you know that? You're a missionary for Christ. You're an ambassador for Christ. You've been called and you have a purpose in your life. And I hope this passage today really reignites that flame again. So if you cast our minds back, it's been a few weeks now since we were in Mark's Gospel. But if you were here last time out, you'll remember we were covering the story um, of Jesus being rejected in his own hometown. And so now we're looking at a passage where he calls the twelve to himself and he sends them out. It's not the first time we've, we've heard about the twelve in this gospel. Back in chapter 3, I remember it was Pete, I think, Pete Rayner, who preached on this from chapter 3 when we were back there. It's the first time we hear of Jesus calling the twelve. Uh, it reads th- this in, in, in chapter 3, verse 13 to 19. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and he called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve who he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out. Just catch that there. They might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, who he gave the name Peter, 
James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave, gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. I asked you to catch that there because this is really important. They were called to him for two very distinct purposes. They were called that they might be with Jesus And they were called that they might go out and preach Jesus. So they were called to be with Jesus and they were called to go out and to preach Jesus. I want to say that this is true for any of you in the room who follow Jesus today. You've been called for those same two purposes. You've been called firstly and primarily to be with Jesus. I don't know if you you knew that. Isn't that an incredible, profound fact that you were called to be primarily and firstly with Christ? If you're a Christian, you don't want to be with Jesus, there's a problem because that's your destiny for eternity is to be with him, okay? It isn't firstly to serve him, it's to be with him, okay? So you were called firstly to be with Jesus. Jesus Christ. In John 14, as Jesus is sat with his disciples at the Last Supper, he says this to them, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, who the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the Holy Spirit has been sent. Why? So that Jesus can be with you today so that you can be with Christ right now he's in the room you ever thought of that when we gather together Jesus is right here in the midst he's in you by the Holy Spirit secondly as an outflow of being with Jesus we have been called to preach Jesus he called you to send you out that's what my message is called today called and sent called and sent okay you've been called to proclaim Jesus When Jesus is being taken up into heaven to be with his Father, it's the last thing that he says to his disciples at the end of Matthew's Gospel. We all know it as the Great Commission. He says this, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, go, go out, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's the great commission that gets passed on through generations from saints to saints to saints that we are called to go out and to make disciples of all nations. So we're called to be with Jesus and we're called to go out and to preach Jesus. I want to deal with a few objections or questions to that today. Because when we talk about being with Jesus, as that being part of the reason we've been called, there are very few who have problems with that. There are very few who feel anxious about that. Maybe there are some, but, but they're the minority. But when we talk about going out into a hostile world that doesn't know Jesus, and we've got to go out there and tell people about Jesus, we've got to talk about our faith, well, then we begin to feel a little bit apprehensive. What if, I, what if I'm not ready? What if I make a mess of it? What if I'm not properly equipped? Now, these are some of the questions that I hope 
we're going to get to deal with today as we, we journey through this passage together. Again, I just want for us to, to get in our heads the context of this, this uh, passage right here, because context is king, isn't it? Whenever we read Scripture together, we're reading it in context. So that means whenever we pick out a verse, we want to know what came before that verse, what preceded it, and we want to know what comes after it. The danger of cherry-picking verses is that we rip them out of their original context, and I think it was somebody very clever said, any verse taken out of context becomes a pretext, okay? So any verse taken out of context can become a pretext, a proof text for something completely unbiblical, okay? So we want to read Scripture in context. So we cast our minds back, and we remember that immediately before this, when Jesus sends out his disciples, he's actually been rejected in his own hometown, hasn't he? It's hardly the ideal launching point for his ministry, is it, in human terms? He just got rejected in the one place where surely he should have been accepted. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus immediately goes from that to sending out his disciples he doesn't wait for his message to kind of catch on, you know, before he does this. He wasn't waiting for his approval ratings to rise um, before, <laughs> uh, before getting back out there. Jesus knew what he was on earth to do, didn't he? And he just went out and got it done. He got on with it. My question to you today is, do you know why you're here? Do you know what your purpose is on earth? You've got an idea of what that calling is. Or are you waiting for somebody or something to tell you, to give you permission to get on with it? Are you waiting for approval from others before you'll actually pursue God's call on your life? Well, I want you to see that Jesus and the disciples didn't wait for that. They didn't wait for the approval of mankind. They didn't wait until... There was a general kind of permission from those around them. They went and got on with it. The fact is, if you're truly pursuing God's call over your life, then the approval of mankind won't be yours anyway. It won't be yours anyway. We're promised tribulation in this world, aren't we? I think also when we think about the 12 disciples, imagine yourself as one of Jesus' disciples. You've just seen... Jesus, the Lord, the same guy who you've been watching work miracles. You've just seen him practically chased out of his own village. And now he's asking you to go out and preach the same message that just got him kicked out of Nazareth, okay? You know, I think there are a lot of Christians in this country who are waiting for church and for Christianity to become socially acceptable. They're waiting for church and Christianity to become popular before they'll open their mouth about their own faith. I see this, and I understand it. I've been there. I've felt like this sometimes. It's like they're kind of, you know, waiting for the winds to change, and, and they're, they're looking out in the media for positive coverage of church or Christianity. It's like any time there's a, 
a positive story about a Christian sports person. There's absolute jubilation. It gets shared all over social media. Oh, isn't this wonderful? Oh, look what the Archbishop of Canterbury said, and everybody thought it was brilliant. You know, the UK blessing. Oh, chuck it out everywhere. Share the, you know, share the bajiggins out of it. Let's get it out there, okay? And every time there's a story that's a bit embarrassing about Christianity in the media, there's absolute acrimony, you know. <laughs> it's the worst thing that's ever happened. And, and these closet Christians... They often spend most of their time denouncing the kind of Christianity that the media hates, right? They, they share that embarrassing story and go, well, it's not me. We don't behave like this. You know, this isn't us. We separate ourselves from that. And they hope in vain that that kind of chastising of the embarrassing side of Christianity is going to bring about a change in the media, you know, or at least it's going to kind of get them off the hook. They won't be held personally responsible. They won't experience scrutiny. But unfortunately, Jesus says, doesn't he, in John 15, as he's talking to his disciples, he says, remember the word that I said to you. Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, there's never going to be a day except for out-and-out revival and Jesus' kingdom comes again when you're going to see the secular media turn into a praise and worship service, right? We need to stop waiting for the cultural winds to change before we'll share Jesus Christ because the promise is that you will face occasional rejection when you preach that gospel. You will be looked at as silly and backwards and foolish and that's part and parcel isn't it of, of being a Christian you're swimming against the current you're not going with it you know as Malcolm Muggeridge said only dead fish swim with the, the current right the disciples didn't wait for the tide of popular opinion to turn they went out to preach they went out to preach and so must we however that looks for us I'm not talking about all of you needing a soapbox to stand up on street corners and preach you understand what I'm saying? It's, it's the proclamation of the truth about Jesus Christ. Whether that's a Facebook message, whether it's on social media, whether it's in person, whether it's a conversation with friends and family, that can be preaching the gospel, can't it? Okay, so it's about doing that and letting the response be what the response is and still finding a way to love that person no matter what they say about us. So let's remember as well, when we, when we come to this question of, well, okay, Graham, it's all well and good for you. Maybe you're, you're an extrovert and you like talking to strangers, but, and you're a pastor and you maybe have some theological training, um, but, but I don't. And I worry that if I, if I talk to someone about Jesus, that I'll make an awful mess of it. Well, I want to tell you as well, I've done that many times, many times too. Have you? I've completely got my world, words tangled up. I've made dreadful attempts at sharing the gospel before. I've said things that are borderline heresy by accident. Um, you will. You will fumble and make mistakes. But you know what? It's not about being perfect, and I want to prove it to you. Because these guys, these 12 guys, didn't have a theology degree between them, did they? They didn't have a theology degree between them. But they'd been with Jesus. That was the important factor they had been with Jesus 
And I, what I'm not saying is that theology is not important. For, for somebody who's teaching regularly, it's important, isn't it, to know the God who you're preaching. And that's theology. I want to say that, that there's no Christian in this room who isn't doing theology on some level. You're all doing theology. The question is whether we're doing it well or not. Okay, so it's not that it's not important. It's that it's not essential to have a theology degree or be very learned to share the gospel. The disciples weren't, okay? However, what I want to say is the important factor that we see with these guys is they've been with Jesus. They've been with Jesus. I think there are errors on either side of this. I think sometimes people place too little emphasis on theology. You know, they almost look at theology like the devil, right? You know, it's the, you shouldn't be looking too much into doctrine because it only causes division and it's problematic and we should just be, you know, we should just be encouraging one another and, and what have you and just leave the doctrine alone. And I think that's not a good way to go because as we'll see, the disciples went out and preached theology. They preached doctrine. So they knew some things, right? So let's not throw knowledge out of the window. It's important. But at the same time, I think you can go too far the other way. And I think in many circles, in many denominations even, and we're trying to backpedal and work out how to manage this, I think, in the global church, there's been too much emphasis put on theology to the point where we think that if we put somebody through three years of a degree and then we put them through vicar school, that makes them a minister of the gospel. I want to tell you it doesn't. A sheet of paper graduating from vicar school does not a minister make, does it? The key core qualification that you need is that you've been with Jesus. Amen? I think the other thing to mention, and this is really important, is sometimes we, we maybe we don't feel kind of like we'd have a problem explaining the gospel, but we, we maybe feel inadequate. We perhaps feel inadequate. God, are you sure you want to choose me to do this job? Like, I messed up yesterday horribly, and, and I remember it all too well, and I'm sure you have a much better memory, God, of all of my failings. How can I possibly stand up and tell these people about you when I know I'm such a failure? Perhaps it's just me. But it it is a real feeling that, that we face, isn't it? Well, God, how am I worthy to preach your gospel? Surely there'll be others that you want to choose, perfect people somewhere that you want to choose to share your gospel with others. I want to remind you that Judas Iscariot was in this 12 that went out to preach the gospel at first. Jesus chose Judas to preach the gospel. And it doesn't say, well, the message was preached by 11, but Judas made a dreadful hash of it. Nobody listened to Judas. He didn't work any miracles because we all know he's about to come a, a terrible cropper. It doesn't say that, does it? So we're led to believe that Judas actually went out and preached the gospel and saw people healed and delivered people from demonic spirits. The same guy who was stealing from the money bag, the same guy who's about to betray the Son of God, was used by Jesus to preach the gospel. Now, let me say to you, if Jesus trusted Judas, he can trust you to preach the gospel. Amen? 
And we're told that he sends them out in twos. He sends them out two by two. And he doesn't really give them anything, does he? He lets them have a staff, but that's it. You imagine? Just saying to you now, right, you know, Jamie, Dave, off you go. You can't take any money. You can't take another coat. You can't take any, um, what does he say, any bag, no, no bag, just a staff. You'd be like, well, that's odd. That's strange. Why, why nothing? Why doesn't he give them anything? And why twos? Why does he send them out in twos? Why not on their own and get more coverage? You know, he could have gone to more cities if he'd let them go out on their own. Twelve villages uh, simultaneously. Why does he send them out in twos? Well, firstly, we know from Scripture that anything, any, any um, fact was established on the basis of two or three witnesses, wasn't it? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So on one hand, they were sent out in twos so that whatever one of them was preaching, the other could attest to and say, I can attest to this fact. I can attest to this truth about Christ. So it was to verify what they were preaching. I want to tell you how important facts are to Christianity. Christianity stands or falls based on the facts, historical facts about who Christ Jesus was. Isn't this true? Christianity is not like Buddhism. It's not a collection of teachings. Christianity isn't a religion that just says, hey, um, you, know, you know what, treat others as, they, as you want to be treated. There you go, that's Christianity. That's not Christianity. That's a teaching that Jesus taught, in a sense, okay? But it's not Christianity. Christianity is the, the preaching of Christ, which is built on historical facts. So facts are important in our preaching. Are they not? And that's why they were sent out two by two, to verify the facts that were being preached. On a more practical level, why did they go out to by two. Well, to support one another. I want to say that nobody should be doing ministry on their own. Nobody should be going out on mission on their own. Ministry can be a really lonely place. How many of you understand that? I know many in the room have experienced it. It could be such a lonely place. It was never meant to be. It was never meant to be this ivory tower where there's the one big shot pastor and nobody can know them or get to them. It was never meant to be this place where you become so removed from community that you're just vulnerable to every enemy attack. It wasn't supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be a place of reliance and dependence upon others, you know? And I think we've lost something of that, haven't we, in the church in the 20th century? Um, there's not that kind of codependency that I think there was in the first century. And we want to win that back. We want to win that back, okay? Because it's important that we're together. We can be a support to one another, okay? Nobody is beyond temptation. Nobody is a person who doesn't need company. We all need one another. And why did he send them out with no provisions? Why is he saying they, they can't take any money? You know, what's that about? Why is he doing that? Is that a rule that we need to take? Does that mean every time... As Hope City Church, we want to send out a church plant. We want to send out some evangelists. We've got to say to them before, you can't take any money with you. Why not? Well, Mark 6. You know, are we supposed to read it like that? Like this is a, a once-for-all command from Jesus that no missionary should ever take money. 
Well, let's look at this. Why has he sent them out with no provision? Well, on one hand, I want you to see something here. There's no... Jesus isn't wanting them to commend themselves to the villages they're going to by their personal wealth. Right? He doesn't send them with a prestige entourage of donkeys and camels. The latest donkeys and camels kitted out and tacked up to the max. He doesn't send them out with a budget to go to the best premier hotel. He doesn't even give them some money for a smoke machine and some nice lighting. There's no Shekinah glory haze when they're preaching. (laughs) Now, obviously, I'm joking. I'm, I'm taking this too far. But Jesus didn't think that any of these material things was essential for preaching the gospel, for doing his work. Jesus, as I say, he doesn't get his disciples to win over those they're preaching to by their possessions. And I think it's important to say that and to make light of it because there are ministers today that believe that that is important. There are ministers today that preach that a pastor ought to have all the best things and shouldn't have a dodgy car or should never, you know, look anything else other than immaculate because people are looking at them and they're looking for them to have the best things so that they can see the blessing of the Lord on them. In fact, there was a pastor until quite recently in London who his mission base was on a council estate and he used to drive a Lamborghini around the council estate. You know why? So that they would all see the goodness of God. And, and I think that's taken it a bit far, if I'm honest. Right? Jesus never taught for us to rely on our material wealth. But equally, I think there's another error which says that Jesus is teaching a hard and fast rule here that a minister of the gospel should have nothing they should be poor. They should always be on the bread line, okay? Um, <laughs> should always be in lack. And you're not allowed to have anything. You've got to live by faith, hand to mouth for everything. And I don't think we can treat this as a hard and fast rule for church planting and for ministry. Because later on, in, in Luke's gospel actually, Luke 22, 35 to 36, Jesus says to them again, he says, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And the obviously, the answer is nothing. We didn't didn't lack for anything. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So there's times when Jesus sends them out with nothing and there's times when he says, actually, I want you to go and equip yourself. So why was he sending them out here with nothing? I think he sent them out with nothing so they could learn a lesson. I think he's teaching them a lesson here. He's teaching them to be dependent on God's provision. How many of you have had to learn that lesson before? When God sends you out into something with nothing, you know? You start out in a new job or you move to a new house or you you start a family and you just look at your provisions and you think, well, we've got nothing. We'd be in trouble here unless, you know, unless God moves, we're in trouble. What God's teaching you there is reliance. He's teaching you trust. He's teaching them that he's sovereign. And whatever he has sent you to do, he will provide for your needs in it. Okay? Isn't that a wonderful lesson? Scary. A scary lesson, but a necessary lesson for all who are going to go and serve the Lord. We need to be taught reliance upon him he's teaching them 
this verse here, Mark, sorry, Matthew 6.33. To seek first the what? The kingdom of God. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that all those other things that we need and we desire, they will be added to us as we are seeking. Okay? So the twelve are going out. They don't have any place to stay. They've got no money to buy food. They're going to have to rely solely on the generosity of those who they're ministering to for all of those things. They're going to have to rely on those people that they're preaching to. And actually, this sets a precedent for what I was talking about in the offering. We read in Galatians 6, verse 6, Paul says, Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. And again, Paul in 1 Timothy 5 says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Now that honor literally means financial remuneration, okay? Especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Again, in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But again, Paul turns it around and he says, but I've made no use of any of these rights. He calls it a right for a preacher of the gospel to earn their living or earn their money from those they're preaching to. But he actually foregoes it. He says, I've made no use of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I'd rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So at the same time as Paul saying, um, and Jesus teaching, that somebody going out to, to uh, evangelize or to, to preach and to teach, to build up a, a church community, has every right to earn their living from that community, at the same time, a minister can forego that if they feel that it's going to become a, a, a kind of a boundary, a blockage for the faith of the people they're preaching to. Especially if you're going out, and imagine if we go out and we do a, if we were to do a church plant in the Scotlands, right, in Wolverhampton, which is a, it's a deprived area, right? Imagine if we were to set up a church in that area and then the first Sunday we were to get the offering bucket out and go, right, okay, everyone needs to give their tithe. Well, that might, that might create a barrier for them of faith, wouldn't it? It's almost like it would destroy what we were going there to do. So there are times when a minister will forego that and say, I don't want the money. So you can see the principles being laid out here. I think ultimately the lesson is when we're doing God's work, when we're serving him and whatever it is he's called us to do, we can rest assured, we can be at peace, we can be at rest that God's going to provide for all of our needs, that he'll take care of us. I remember, it's only a year and a half ago, I remember when we started this church, you know, the, the, the group of us who, who came out and started it, we had to trust God for all of our needs. We me and my family left behind all of our salary to, to come and start this. But we knew that if we'd heard God right, that he'd provide for us. We knew as a leadership when we came to this building that if we've heard God right, he'll provide for us. We don't need to worry about that. Now, what's more is that although the 12 being sent out, and although you in your situations, wherever you've been sent out and feeling sometimes like, wow, I need for things, I, I, I have lack... Though they may have lacked worldly provisions, they didn't lack any spiritual provisions. They didn't lack any spiritual firepower. Jesus gave them authority and power over unclean spirits, it says. And they've been given the same authority and power that Jesus had to go out and minister in his name. Now, I want to say, wherever God sends Christians today, 
he sends them with the same power and authority that Jesus Christ preached with in the first century AD. Amen? Wherever we see the gospel being preached in the world, we see powerful signs and wonders. We see lives turned around. Even today, we see demons cast out. We see healings. Not just in the deepest, darkest nations of Africa, but here in the UK. We still see that same power and authority that Christ gave the Twelve operating in the church today. I've seen it. You know, I was in Ethiopia just two years ago on a crusade, ministering in some villages, uh, really, really remote villages, and these villages had not been exposed to the gospel before. And we saw this firsthand. We saw people healed. We saw people get up out of wheelchairs. Um, We saw deliverances, which was just eye-opening. Um, we saw all kinds of things happening because the power and authority that Christ had given us was with us. Not because we were special, but because he had equipped us with the Holy Spirit. I want to say two things about that. Firstly, only Jesus can give that kind of authority. This is about Christ. Every time we read the Gospel of Mark, he's wanting to tell us about who. He's not trying to tell you about you, he's trying to tell you about Jesus. Amen? Amen? That's why at this church we want to be focused firstly, primarily on God. Who is God? If you know who God is, then who you are will get sorted out. Okay? You'll learn that as you learn about who God is. Only Jesus can give authority over the demonic realm. He was the only one who had the authority to give away. And this authority, this power, I want to say something very clearly. Jesus didn't tell the disciples, guys, look within yourselves. Look within yourself. It's in there. All you need to do is believe it. Just say, say after me, I am powerful. I am powerful. I am anointed. I am anointed. He didn't do that, did he? He didn't ask them to navel gaze and look within them for the power because they did not have it. Christ had to give them it. Amen? There's a new age religion which is infiltrating the church, which teaches you that everything you have is within. All you need to do is believe it. All you need to do is declare it. That's not Christianity. They didn't have the power and authority. They had to be given it. Secondly, I want us to see this. Jesus sent his disciples out, not just with a message of truth, but with the power to verify it. With the power to verify it. Okay? Wherever the gospel's preached we see the Holy Spirit operate in power to, tra- to transform lives. Amen? Finally, let's, let's land on this. We're told what they preached, aren't we? We're told that they went out and they preached this really simple message that people should what? That they should repent. That they should repent. Now, they all, the 12 of them, they all preached the same message, didn't they? James and John didn't go off and preach their own message about kind of healing, you know. And we didn't see Peter and Andrew going out preaching about self-worth over here. You know, you can have self-worth in Christ. They all preached the same message, which was repent. It was the same message they heard Jesus preaching. Exact same message they heard Jesus. They just copied Jesus. Because back in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, I don't know if you remember, one of the first things we hear about Jesus, that he was out preaching saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel 
The Christian message, the good news and the gospel that we're talking about today, it doesn't change. It doesn't change. It shouldn't be abandoned or added to because we don't feel it's really working for us. Okay? It shouldn't be tailored to suit our own pet doctrines, our own ideas. This message of repentance which calls people to turn from their sins this is the message that we must stick with. Amen? Now, there's lots of discussion about what this word repentance means, and I'm sure you're all very, very familiar with that word. The, the word in Greek is metanoeo, or metanoia, and it can mean to change one's mind. It can literally mean something as simple as that, to change one's mind. However, in this context, what it means, and I'll read to you from um, a Greek-English lexicon here, The definition is this, to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. To repent, to change one's way. It's an about turn, it's a 180. Okay, it's a turning from something to something. Repentance isn't just feeling very awful. I used to think it was that. I used to think, you know, if I'm going to repent, it means basically I've just got to feel really awful about something I've done. You know, I need to really meditate on the, on the disgracefulness of what I did and just, you know, maybe try and dredge up some tears and, and that's repentance. Well, that might be a part of repentance and what it means. Definitely there's a sorrow in repentance, but it's more than that. It's more than that. It, yes, it's a feeling bad about our sins, but it's a turning from our sins and a turning to Christ. That's what repentance is. Now, they preach quite a simple message. It says they preach that, that men or that people should repent. Now, I want to be clear because I think there's maybe a better way to read this in the Greek, okay, that, that will help us understand. Because when we read it like that, they, they went around preaching that people should repent. I have this picture in my head of, of Blackadder's puritanical relatives. You know the ones if you used to watch Blackadder just w- walking around with placards, repent, repent, you know, the end is nigh. But um, when we read it in the Greek, what it says is, is something more like, uh, and they went out preaching in order that people might repent. Literally, that's what that says, okay? They went out preaching in order that people might repent. It's in something called the subjunctive form, very, um, very interesting form, which always gives this idea of intention or motive. So what it's really saying is that they went about with the end goal in their preaching that those who heard them would repent. So I'm sure they weren't just walking around going, repent, you sinner, rip. you know, <laughs> there was more to it than that. But the end goal was that people should repent. And that is Brothers and sisters, that's the end goal of all good Christian preaching, is that those hearing the gospel, those hearing the word of God, might not just get more knowledgeable. Um, we hope that they don't just kind of leave feeling good. And I think many these days do get confused and think that Christian preaching is about making people feel good. You know, if I've preached and people walk out with their heads held high thinking, oh, I can do this, that that's what we're aiming at. But actually, the gospel. The, the Gospels say otherwise. They say the chief end is repentance. It's that people would, would turn. They would change. They'd leave their old life behind and they would die to self and turn to Jesus. 
And finally, Jesus warns us of the stark, the, the grave circumstances of rejecting this message, doesn't he? He says, you know what? It's going to be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those cities that reject you or reject the gospel. He says, as you leave these towns, if they don't receive the gospel, shake the dust off from your feet. Now, we don't do that, do we? Because it's not really dust in Wolverhampton because it rains too much. It's, you know, it'd be more like shaking the mud off your boots as you leave. But the point being is that the Jews, when they would leave a Gentile city, they would literally shake the dust off their robes. Why did they do that? Because the city was unclean. It's a Gentile city, okay? So what Jesus is saying to his disciples is, shake the dust off your feet in a Jewish city where they think that they're already chosen. They think they're already pure. He said, no. If they don't receive the message about me, they're as unclean as any Gentile city. Jesus says it's more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember those cities? Rain down sulfur and fire on them until they were destroyed. More bearable for them on the day of judgment than cities that reject the gospel in our time. I wonder how this makes us feel about our city of Wolverhampton. How will Wolverhampton fare on the day of judgment? How will England fare on the day of judgment? How will our nation fare on that day? That's why we continue, isn't it, brothers and sisters, to tell people about Jesus in this town. That's why we don't stop. Even this Thursday, you know, when we were out on the streets with our team, it was snowing. It was freezing cold. Our fingers were like giblets. It was horrendous. Were it not for Garth and his little heated ski packs, we'd have perished. But that's why we do this. That's why we don't stop, because we don't want Wolverhampton's fate to be like Sodom and Gomorrah's on that day. We want to see our city receive the gospel. We want to see them repent. We want to see lives transformed. And we're responsible to do that. I'm going to read a a Spurgeon quote and then we pray. Charles Spurgeon said this. He's always just got such a way with words. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. Amen. Let's stand. I'm going to ask Mike to come back up. And um, I say, if you feel like you could use some encouragement, some, some encouragement from the Holy Spirit in sharing the gospel, you feel like you could use some more boldness, some more confidence in sharing the gospel, or you'd like more opportunities to tell others about Jesus, just pop your hand up now, and we'll just pray, shall we? Keep your hands up there. Father, we we just want to thank you for these people who feel that that call to to just start coming out the shell a bit, uh, be more bold in telling others about Jesus. We pray right now as they've got their hand in the air, Holy Spirit, that you'd begin to fill them begin to fill them afresh, a fresh outpouring into their life. 
a fresh encounter with you because we know you called us first and foremost to be with you. And I sense that for some of you, God's wanting to just remind you that he is with you. He is with you. You can enjoy him right now. And that's the, that's the primary reason why he called you out of sin in the first place because he just wanted to be with you. He called you to be with him. So we just pray right now for a, a fresh recognition of that truth that Jesus is with you right now. And Lord, we pray also just for opportunities even this week to share the gospel with our friends, with our family, colleagues, acquaintances. And God, we pray that in that moment, we'd have the courage and the boldness to walk through that door and to, to share you with others. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Amen.